Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. In recent years, it's become routine to describe India as a rising superpower and as one of the world's most dynamic economies. But now the Indian currency is plunging, the economy is stalling. And what's happening in India seems to be part of a broader problem with emerging markets, with economies as diverse as Indonesia, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil, also suffering from currency jitters. So what's going on and how deep are the problems? Joining me on the line from Delhi is Victor Mallet, our bureau chief there. And here in the studio in London is Ralph Atkins, our capital markets editor. Victor, first, give us a sense of the mood among policymakers and the general public in India. Is there a sense of, of crisis? I think there is, yes, very much so. The last few days, not just because the rupee has fallen to, to successive record lows, but because the government and the central bank, the Reserve Bank of India, have taken various measures which have not only not worked in keeping the rupee higher, they've actually seemed to have contributed to its fall because nobody seems to have much confidence that these measures will, will be effective. So there is, a, there is very much a sense of crisis. And the acute crisis that we've had over the last week or two has, I think, unveiled the deeper crisis facing India over the longer term. And, and that has simply sort of added to the general air of nervousness and anxiety. So if the currency is the symptom, what, what are the causes of this deeper crisis that you allude to? Well, the immediate trigger, of course, is the, is the prospect of reduced liquidity from, from the Fed, which is going to make assets in, in, in the US more attractive. India is particularly exposed to this because it has a large current account deficit that it needs to finance with flows of foreign money. And as soon as that foreign money looks like it might be going elsewhere, that, that causes a problem. So the, the measures that the government has taken and, and the Reserve Bank have taken have been designed to try and cut the import bill and find other ways of financing the current account deficit. And it's those measures that haven't, well, it's hard to say they've been effective, but they haven't inspired confidence in the markets anyway. So Ralph, as Victor says, a lot of this seems to come back to actions being not even taken, but contemplated in distant New York by the US. Is that the source of all this? I think it's a been a major factor in what we've seen in the last few days and, and weeks in particular. I think the investor disenchantment with emerging markets goes back longer. We've had worries about China hard landing in the Chinese economy and so on for, for some time. And, and emerging market equities have underperformed when US, European equities have been bouncing back. But what we've very definitely seen is the reversal of all the capital that flowed out of the US, out of Europe, into these emerging markets by investors looking for higher yield. We've had a change in sentiment that's triggered by the talk about um, tapering or scaling back asset purchased by the US Fed. 
and these outflows and the and the expectations of outflows have led to this uh, rather dramatic sell-off we've seen. Tell us which markets in particular look look vulnerable. I mean, India is obviously the big one, but what are the others? Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a link. I mean, which um, Victor mentioned. It's the countries with the large current account deficits, the ones that have relied on these capital flows that are now seeing the worst effects. You can you can if you plot the uh, changes in currencies, the biggest fallers in the last few weeks have been the countries with the largest current account deficits, and we've seen the biggest sell-off in bond markets, i.e., biggest rising yields in those current account deficit countries as well. That Such, would be Turkey. Turkey. South Africa, Indonesia has been seen very sharp falls in equity prices this week. Mm-hmm. And how uh, how far can it go? I mean, is this a correction or is this possibly the beginning of something, a larger trend? Well, it, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, this, it's a cliche, but we are in uncharted territory. We haven't had QE on this scale by the global monetary authorities before. Does the Fed really know what it's doing? I mean, it, it, its focus, of course, is the US. It, it doesn't really have a mandate to worry about what happens in the rest of the world. It's obviously acutely aware of what is. But you could, if you want a reason to worry, we are only at the very beginning of this process. We're just talking about the possibility of scaling back the asset purchases, let alone even talking about interest rate increases, uh, which are some way off. And Victor, I mean, this kind of gives the lie, doesn't it, to, to a theory that was quite fashionable in Asia. I'm not sure whether it was as, as prevalent in India, that there'd been a sort of decoupling between the dynamic economies of Asia and the US, that the US was no longer the core of the global economy. India's, after all, its major trading partner, I believe, is China. And yet, they're now rediscovering, perhaps, that what happens in America does uh, seem to set the weather for the global economy. I think that's right. And, and if you look, if you compare this growing crisis that we're faced with now in emerging markets with, with previous crises, whether in the developed world or, or the developing world, there are, there are sort of common patterns. And, and one of them is that prior to the crisis, you have a great sense of complacency, a belief, uh, as we had in, in Asia in the early 1990s, you know, the belief that Asia was, was booming and everywhere else was finished. And now in India, we had this, because we had some years of very high growth in India in the last few years, uh, the belief that, you know, whatever they did, it would be fine. And, of course, what happens is when you get a, a trigger like we've had from the Fed, all those illusions are, are shattered when people realize, actually, yes, you know, th- there are opportunities in this economy, but it has all kinds of problems as well that haven't been dealt with. Uh, you know, they need to attract investment. They need to educate the workforce. They need to build infrastructure and so on. And all those failings suddenly come out. The bank's turn out to be weaker than expected, the corporates are indebted, and all those things sort of feed into the mood of crisis that we're seeing now. It's very interesting the echoes we actually have of the um, crises we had in, in Europe over the last few years as well, actually, because, of course, they started in the Baltic countries, which were running massive current account deficits in 2007-2008. And it was only later that it spread to the Eurozone. People thought that fixed exchange rate regime would protect economies, which is exactly what you hear now about um, some of the developing market economies. Of course, that was only an illusion. And then eventually there was the massive outflows of capital that triggered the crisis in southern Europe. Now, Victor, I mean, one of the things that India does appear to have going for it is it's got quite skilled policymakers. Chidandram, the finance minister, has been around for a very long time. He's very respected. The new central bank governor, Raghuram Rajan, is an academic economist who's well known in the United States. But how many policies do they have at their disposal? Do you think this is something that can be put right by intelligent policy at this point? 
Well, yes, I think I think it is. Although obviously, intelligent policy sometimes takes years to to put into effect. I think there has been complacency here, as as there was in in Europe, about how intelligent policymakers were and how they could see the problems and had already, as it were, dealt with them in advance. And then it turned out that actually they hadn't. I think the bigger problem in India is that Chidambaram, the finance minister, Raghuram Rajan, the incoming governor of the central bank, they know exactly what has to be done to put the economy on a sander footing. The problem is that for political reasons, they are already finding it very hard to do anything at all. I was watching on live television just now the parliament session, and it's basically just a bunch of people shouting at each other. The government is trying to get through crucial legislation which will affect the economy one way or the other, and it's simply unable to do so because of this very chaotic political situation. And there's an election looming within about nine months or so, and that will make it even more difficult for any government to implement policies that are seen as hurting the poor. For example, the kind of austerity that you might need to tackle your fiscal and current account deficits. Victor, uh, Ralph raised the spectre of the euro crisis and the parallels with that. You covered the uh, 1998 Asian financial crisis. Does this feel a bit like that? Well, a little bit, yes. As I said, I think that the sort of the real common aspect to it is the, the belief beforehand that there really wasn't a problem and then the very sudden realisation that there is a problem. And then what you see is is the underlying critical sort of weaknesses that some people had had spoken about and warned about, but they were really voices crying in the wilderness and no one paid any attention. And that's particularly true of of the banking system. And you saw that in Europe as well in, in 2008 onwards. The Spanish banks, for example, were said to be immune to all kinds of problems because they hadn't got involved in derivatives. But it turned out they had a very traditional banking crisis on their hands as a result of bad property lending. And I think you might see the same kind of things in, in Asia this time around, where the, the, the banking system in India is, is, is weaker than it looks. And, and some of the regulators are quite worried about it. So, yeah, there are, there are similarities, I think. Uh, Ralph, I mean, how much of a hold does this place in the entire emerging market story? You, you, you said earlier that there's been, you know, the equities are underperforming. But to put the opposite case, I guess, if you've been following this for 20, 30 years, it looks like a big historical trend, which is punctuated by occasional things like the Asian financial crisis. But in the end, the story is still true. Yeah, I think that remains the case. I mean, if you look on a very long term basis, I think people do think the emerging market story is about growth and development. And it's about the development of local currency markets instead of relying on on, on dollar flows and so on. Uh, so this is, if, if you like, an aberration within that, that longer term trend, but it's a pretty serious uh, situation. And the, what's striking is how sentiment has turned so markedly and how the uh, reversing QE capital flows has had such a dramatic impact. And does it mean, though, that it's a story that's going to be confined to emerging markets? Or, or do you think actually, you know, the people in the West who are sitting here saying, ha ha, told you so, you know, these places are a bit flaky, may find that they too are affected both by the turmoil in the emerging markets and by the withdrawal of QE? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the lesson is globalization continues apace and, and the economic, the macroeconomic links are stronger. It'll affect trade, it'll affect export opportunities for, for European, US companies. But also there's a question of if this is what you get from talk about tapering on emerging markets, you know, the implications for higher interest rates globally on the weaker Eurozone members are quite worrying as well. Ralph Atkins here in London. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to Victor Mallet in Delhi. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.